If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Thursday, March the 22nd, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Our guest today in the studio here in the heart of a rainy Stanford University campus is Rich Lowry. He is first and foremost the editor of National Review. Rich's columns have appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Rich has appeared as a commentator on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and the McLaughlin Group. He is also the author of the New York Times bestseller Legacy, Paying the Price for the Clinton Years, and more recently, Lincoln Unbound, How an Ambitious Young Rail Splitter Saved the American Dream and How We Can Do It Again. And yes, both are available on Amazon.com. Rich, thanks for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me, Bill. I, I thought there wasn't supposed to be any such thing as a heart of the rainy Stanford campus. Well, it does rain in California, contrary <laughs> to what you may think on the East Coast. And yes, we need the rain. And as miserable as the weather is, it's probably better than being in Washington or New York right now for a this lot of reasons. This is true. So uh, you grew up in Arlington, Virginia, as did I. And you very smartly took advantage of one of the best bargains in public education, which is the University of Virginia. So I have to ask you a question. Who's had the worst march? Andrew McCabe, Mark Zuckerberg, or Tony Bennett, the coach of the UVA basketball team? It's, it's not even close. But the, the guy who's handling it with the most class is Tony Bennett, always. You know, this was the, the worst night in his career when UVA lost to UMBC. And he s- stood out in front of the locker room and said, look, this is what happens when you're in the arena. I just told my guys, you have good nights, you have bad nights, you have t- tough losses, and sometimes you have historic losses. And obviously, this is a historic loss. So we'll have to put up, as UVA fans, for the next 30 years hearing every March, there's only been one number one t- seed that's ever <laughs> lost to a 16, the University of Virginia. Yeah, it's being caught in the highlight loop, for, uh, loop forever. Uh, my sense, though, is that unlike, say, Alabama football or Kentucky basketball, the University of Virginia probably identifies itself a little bit beyond basketball. Yeah, that's true. But And it's frustrating because I, I thought they would lose th- this way at some point in the tournament, not the first right. game. Right. But the problem is UVA has genuine student athletes and uh, kids who are there for the most part for four years and learn a defensive scheme and learn teamwork. And they're not like these other programs, including Duke, they're just completely sold out to being a, a minor league NBA team. Yeah, I would imagine that watching Duke probably as a Virginia fan frustrates you a bit. Mm, yes. <laughs> okay, Rich, at the end of Donald Trump rallies, a song plays. Do you know what that song is? You can't always get what you want. Exactly. Rolling Stones. Rolling Stone magazine did a list of 100 greatest Rolling Stone songs. This is the great thing about being Hoover Fellow. We can actually spend time and justify looking up these things. Which of these top 100 Rolling Stones songs, Rich, do you think best summarize Donald Trump's relationship with conservatives? A, Give Me Shelter, which was the number one song on the list. B, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. C, Shattered. D, Beast of Burton, or E, 19th Nervous Breakdown. <laughs> Let me play the Jeopardy well, music and you mull it over. Yeah, I, I would say uh, it's not can't get any satisfaction because mm-hmm. actually on the policy front, there's been a fair amount of satisfaction, at least in the first year legislatively, where Trump ended up, um, against my expectations, really running in the groove of traditional Republican policy. And this is because it's just the the path of least resistance to go along with what the congressional leadership wants, especially when you're not particularly well-versed in the policy yourself and don't have a lot of interest in the massive effort it would take to buck 
the congressional leadership. So we've seen deregulation. We saw a real college try at repealing Obamacare and now some some efforts to unspool it at the edges with regulation. And we saw the big tax reform. Where Trump has been different is on immigration, which I welcome, and on trade, which I'm more mixed about. Right. You see among conservatives, oh, Rich, you see sort of three camps. There are conservatives who are dead set against the guy, and we can call that never Trump, if you will. There are conservatives, alternately, who are forever smitten with Donald Trump for whom he could do it wrong. And then there's a third category, Rich, of conservatives for whom I would say Donald Trump is a means to an end. They will abide by a lot of mischief and a lot of tweeting and a lot of sort of daily frustrations because they see a bigger goal down the road. Do you, do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think that's that's right. And a lot of it is just what do you focus on? If mm-hmm. character in the president of the United States is the most important thing to you and, and conduct and decorousness, you're going to be appalled pretty much on an hourly basis. If you close your eyes to all that and either ignore it or find a way to excuse it, you're going to be fairly satisfied, depending on where you fall on sort of the populist nationalist spectrum. You know, um, a, a traditional Reaganite is going to be uncomfortable with, with some of the policies. Someone who's more nationalist populist is going to embrace it all. But then it's been pretty good. And the argument uh, I always make is if you're on Mars and only getting the update of substantive things that were happening until the last uh, two or three weeks when we've had some tariffs, you would think, oh, okay, Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz is president of the United States. But of course, that's not the world we live in. And we're all, all, at least those of us on the East Coast and the Washington DC nexus are marinating every day and in the tweets and the outrageous statements. Right. So if we were doing this podcast in Washington, D.C. today, there would be two stories driving the news. And one would be the budget, which has to be resolved by the end of the week. Otherwise, the government shuts down. And the other story is a fellow named John Dowd. And John Dowd was until this morning Donald Trump's lead counsel on the Mueller investigation, and he has resigned. I was doing an interview with a reporter yesterday, and we were talking about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook's problems. And he has serious problems, don't get me wrong. He's lost a bunch of money. There's a question of corporate confidence. Facebook could lose traffic, could lose customers. But one thing I told the reporter is, let's see how long the story goes. Because the funny thing in Donald Trump's America is a new day seems to bring a new controversy and a new dust storm. And sure enough, a day after Facebook, which was a day after Trump praising Vladimir Putin, now we're chasing John Dowd. You run a magazine, a thoughtful magazine, which prides itself on doing think pieces. How does a magazine running think pieces operate in the age of Trump? Well, we are, we are kind of a bifurcated operation. So we, we have a, a print magazine that we publish fortnightly, once every two weeks, where our, our charge is really to do 30,000 feet analysis. And we continue to do that. It's the, the online where you, you really have to get consumed with, with the day-to-day and the hour-by-hour and I mean, my call to our writers is try to keep a sense of perspective because it's it's usually the case that whatever the story of the moment is, it's not as important as everyone thinks, and it's highly perishable. Now there are exceptions, but for the most part, the the entirety of the Trump administration, nothing has really happened. I mean, there's some exceptions: tax reform, firing Comey was a major event, reaction to Charlottesville, I, I think, is is up there. But most of this stuff is just, it's uh, totally perishable, and it's forgotten the next uh, moment. And that's one reason why, if there weren't some 
other considerations, personal and then also perhaps encouraging other women to come forward, I would just say release Stormy Daniels from her NDA. Mm -hmm. Let her do the whole media round. It'll be obsession for three days. And then a week later, we'll hardly be able to remember her name. It is a curious thing to watch because, if anything, Donald Trump should understand his pop culture and how media work, and yet he seems hell-bent upon giving her as much attention as she can get, be it just to do her dancing career or now maybe writing a book in the future or something like that. You're right. If he would just let it go, she would eventually go away. Yeah. Well, I think there's a personal element. It's humiliating to Melania. Who knows what the, the prenup says, and there may be other NDAs with other women. And Stormy Daniels' lawyer has suggested as much. I don't know whether that's that's right or not. But he, he may believe that if he just shows any weakness and lets her out of it, there'll be other women coming forward and wanting out of their NDAs. And most of this, you know, we already knew this about Donald Trump. I don't think it really hurts him, uh, only to the extent it adds to the this general sense of, of chaos and melodrama. But where the red lines are the same, I think, that that existed for Bill Clinton. Anything in the White House would be a big problem if this sort of conduct has continued or lying under oath. And I just think it's extremely important for him. This is where I would agree with John Dowd, coming back around to him. Do not uh, do a deposition with um, Mueller and fight tooth and nail any attempt by these women to get him under oath. What's your opinion of Joe DeGeneva? I've known him for years. I've always thought he was a smart, hard-nosed guy, and obviously the kind of guy Trump's going to be attracted to, especially if there's a new turn here in his, his attitudes toward Mueller, where he's going to uh, um, confront him more frontally and more publicly. You know, he's a pugnacious uh, street fighter, and, and Trump likes that. You know, his model is Roy Cohn, someone who, uh, you know, the, the response is always uh, a cloud of flying fists and never to give an inch, even when it's in your interest to give an inch, just almost on principle never to give an inch. And I was interested, you would think if Dowd and Cobb go, that would be a sign that that there's more serious consideration of firing Mueller. But apparently the dispute with Dowd was over whether Trump should uh, talk to Mueller. And Trump, you know, he spent his life talking himself out of tight spots. And like Bill Clinton, he probably thinks he can charm and talk talk his way through anything. I just think this is a, a different animal. And I wouldn't agree to questioning at all, fire him, and but only maybe give at the end and agree to written questions. Because just his, he, he does speak differently when he's under oath. Right. But the way he speaks, the looseness of it, the exaggeration, the fuzziness is really a formula for trouble. And I think the, the most lockdown crime that probably can have any um, chance of getting him on would be perjury. You know, Richie Shona could read off a teleprompter and give a good speech doing that, but giving oath is complicated because you have to be at all times limited in what you say and vague. I right. don't recall. I don't right. recall. I don't recall. And I don't think that's Donald Trump's style. I think at all times he wants to play jujitsu with you and mentally wrestle you to the ground and you know get you to use the Rolling Stones under my thumb. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm a big skeptic of collusion. I, I just I, it's really hard to believe. I think kind of the worst thing that could have happened is I believe Roger Stone would have gotten some he- heads up about the hacking of, of the emails after they were hacked, but prior to the release and perhaps signaled this or told this to Donald Trump. But, you know, that's that's bad. This looks kind of sleazy. It's not a crime. And so far, you know, the usual practice, a prosecutor, even if he's letting people 
plead to get their cooperation, you make them plead to what the the core offenses that you're after. And so right. far, there's been no indication of any criminal conspiracy with the Russians, even involving those people you think would be at the center of it, a Paul Manafort or a Michael Flynn. Mm -hmm. Now, I mentioned Facebook earlier, Rich, because one angle that the Facebook story takes you into is the idea that something nefarious was done in the 2016 election, which is this insistence on the part of the left that Donald Trump somehow had to cheat, lie, and manipulate his right. way into the presidency. How long can the press, uh, the, can the left, Rich, how long can they embrace this narrative? In other words, at what point are they going to let it go, or are they never going to let never. it go? Never. Never. They'll embrace it all the way to January 2021 when he's re inaugurated again, if he's reelected. And in that instance, they'll embrace it all the way to January 2025. Why is it so hard for them to let it go? Because they let go of Al Gore. Now, great, and 9-11 kind of you know, consumed everything, but they did get over the Bush derangement after a certain point. They got over, you know, selected, not elected. After 9-11, we moved on. But Trump, there's just, here we are now, uh, a year plus into his presidency, almost two years into his presidency, they haven't let go. Yeah, well, one was the sheer shock of it. Mm -hmm. You know, they were, they were all wrong. And, you know, for some understandable reasons, I think this is, uh, I'm curious what you think, but pretty clearly in my mind, the biggest black swan event in American electoral politics ever. Yeah. Someone who, you know, a year and a half prior to being elected president of the United States, no one thought he could be elected president of the United States, including the candidate himself, who seemed to be doing it at some, some level uh, as a lark or just to, to get uh, air, air his issues, and that he won with no electoral experience or governmental experience or having won a major war is just astonishing. So one, there's a shock of it, and two, it's just the, the hatred and the fear of Donald Trump. And I, I think there are two things that have sort of created this, this poisonous froth at the top of our politics atop a country that actually material conditions are quite good at the moment. Right. Relative peace, you know, a war still going in Afghanistan, a little in Syria, a little Iraq, but compared to the kind of combat we've seen in the last uh, 10 years or so, relatively minor. And the job market really kicking into a different level, and we're beginning to see some wages increase. So all that's great, but it doesn't feel great. And part of it's Trump is constantly stirring uh, the pot. He imagines his presidency on a certain level as a reality TV show. And if it's not on TV and people aren't obsessed by it and people's heads aren't exploding, he wants to make sure they are because he likes watching it himself. But two, it's this phenomenon we're discussing where the media and the opposition do not accept his legitimacy, do not accept the results of the election, and are enthralled to this persistent fantasy that he can somehow go away. We saw it immediately with a talk of an electoral college coup that wouldn't actually um, uh, give him the electoral votes, even though he'd won them. We see it with the talk of the 25th Amendment that's come and gone, and we see it continually in the idea that he would be impeached and removed. Now, I think it's plausible he could be impeached, but he's never going to be removed absent some real thermonuclear scandal or revelation that's a little hard to imagine. Exactly. Take us through the mind of your fellow New Yorker, Hillary Clinton. What is going through her head when she goes to India, when she goes on Dutch TV and says some rather remarkable things about the American elector? One of my theories, Rich, is it's like the movie election where Tracy Flick looks up and she sees the Paul Banner and just the crazy music plays in her head. So maybe, maybe she is just, you know, driven crazy by Trump. But what, what possesses her to do this, to, to go on, make these appearances and, and dump on her fellow women to dump on Ivanka Trump to just go down, take a trip to Bitterville. Why, why is she doing this? Yeah, I mean, she, she can't believe he lost to this guy. Right. And it, it's just, in some ways, it's a, a very natural human reaction. She the doesn't want to denial. admit. Denial. Yeah, denial, yeah that, right. the, the problem was her campaign and her 
herself. But this is why, you know, I, I give Al Gore a lot of credit. He also lost a really close race in excruciating circumstances. Mm -hmm. He disappeared, right. he grew a beard, and then he did something else. And I don't necessarily like what he did, but he went and, and did it and made something else of his, his life. And Hillary, I guess, has just been so invested in this in, for, for so long, and it hurts so much, she can't let it go. Right. Uh, at what point do rich to Democrats just have to throw into the bus. You've seen some people on TV suddenly say it's time for her to go. But you know, in terms of that big breakup between her and a prominent Democrat, someone like a Kamala Harris, someone with the 2020 future, is it going to happen in this cycle or does it happen in 2019 or does it happen in 2020? I assume it's just a, a subtle thing. Like with Bill Clinton, he'll never show up. He'll never give a convention speech again. And I'm not sure anyone needs to, to denounce Hillary Clinton. They just need to treat her as irrelevant, which I think is is already happening. I mean, what she says still gets media attention because she's a former um, presidential candidate and a semi-celebrity. But in terms of having really in, real influence on the, the uh, high-level Democratic politics going forward, that's just a non-starter. Right. Uh, Rich, take us through how editorials are written at the National Review. You see an editorial from the National Review, and it says from the editors. So no one person's signature on it. So are you in a room with a group of people discussing what to do, or are you just writing it? How, how does the process play out? Well, we have uh, two forms of editorials. We have some editorials that just show up in the magazine, and that's kind of old style. We have an editorial meeting every two weeks. We do sit around the, a room and discuss what we should say. But very often we're commenting on things more in real time, and that's more of an online process. There are a few colleagues of mine, two or three, We'll email one another, oh, this just happened. Should we editorialize about it? What, what should we say? Right. And we'll, we'll agree, and then we'll sign it to someone, or one of us will write it. It's written, and then it's distributed by email to around maybe a dozen um, top editors, uh, experts on this given topic for some feedback. We might uh, adjust it or not, and then it's, it's published and without a byline except for the editors denoting that it's our official view. I'm going to read back uh, editors' uh, a comment for the National Review, January 22nd, 2016. So this is 26 months ago to the day. And National Review wrote, quote, if Trump were to become the president, the Republican nominee, or even a failed candidate with strong conservative support, what would that say about conservatives? The movement that ground down the Soviet Union and took the shine at least temporarily off socialism would have fallen in behind a huckster. The movement concerned with such permanent things as constitutional government, marriage, and the right to life would have become a clack for a Twitter feed. So 26 months later, how would you like to update that? Yeah, I think it's a little too harsh. Um, I, I think there is an aspect of that that has happened. Right. I think a lot of people are excusing conduct they never would have in a million years. Mm -hmm. You have evangelicals giving him a, a quote-unquote mulligan on things that they're completely appalled by mm -hmm. uh, when Bill Clinton did them. So I, I do think he's had a distorting effect on the right and not a healthy one in that respect. But he has, as we started with, he's governed more, uh, more as a conservative than I would have thought. His general election campaign ended up being more conservative than I would have thought when we published that editorial. So that's, that's all to the, the good. And what I've uh, what we've been trying to do at NR is open up the aperture uh, a little bit uh, mm -hmm. on issues like trade and uh, think about them a little differently and be at least open to the idea that um, our, our orthodoxy was, was too um, rigid. Um, so uh, I, my, my take on Trump, even you know in 2016, we're desperately trying to stop them, him in the primaries, 
was that we should learn something from him. And the Rubios and the Cruz were too beholden to a a conservatism that was stuck in the glory days of the 1980s. And Trump didn't have any of that at all and showed that's not where Republican voters were. And I think we have to take that on. And I do think the party should be more populist and more nationalist going forward. I don't think that necessarily means endorsing every policy initiative of President Trump, especially I think the steel and aluminum tariffs were almost wholly misconceived. Mm -hmm. I think what he's doing now on China at least is hitting at the right target. People like me supported China's ascension to the WTO in part because we thought it would create a liberalizing regime and a, a more open market. That has not happened. China is not even truly a free trade country. Right. So I, I do think um, that there's been um, a Washington consensus that you can't really deal with that problem because the solutions aren't, quote unquote, free trade. So you let China get away with this and um, distort its own market and distort the market of other countries. So I'm, I'm willing to consider ways to try to uh, crack that nut. But it probably uh, involves dealing, um, allying yourself with other countries and having a free trade posture towards the rest of the world and saying China is the outlier here, rather than alienating a bunch of countries with sort of pointless steel tariffs and making a protectionist case. So, you know, China has some vulnerabilities, but so do we. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be, want to be someone who's growing soybeans at the moment and exporting them to the, the Chinese market because they're, they're going to be in the crosshairs. Exactly. Are you suggesting that the ascent of Donald Trump is, in effect, the burial of Ronald Reagan? I don't think it's the burial of Ronald Reagan. It should be the burial of a out-of-touch nostalgia about Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. Where you know, this is something that always stuck in my mind from 2016. Marco Rubio, when it was clear that his kind of sunny good cheer was not the mood that Republican voters were interested in the primaries, he ran a real downbeat uh, ad, TV ad. But the 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 signature line in it was, it's morning again in America, meaning like th- things are terrible now, but it's going to be morning again in America. But he just couldn't get out of that rhetorical rut. He couldn't come up with some phrase of his own. And I, I, I hope that kind of Republican politics is, is blown up. There's a practical challenge here too, Rich. If you voted for Ronald Reagan the last time he ran for office, 1984, if you turned 18 in 1984, in the 2016 election, congratulations, you turned 50. And you're about to you're about to hit the big 5-0, I believe as well, right? Correct, yeah. You don't look it. You probably still get carded, don't you? Uh, no, <laughs> not most of the time. Uh, there was a time when it was a pain to get carded, but when yeah. somebody asks for your ID <laughs> now, you, you thank them. Uh, but you're under 50, you maybe are not as influenced by Ronald Reagan as Republican candidates might think. You might remember his presidency, you might still remember him being around a few years later, but you're not the Alec P. Keaton character from Family Ties who believes staunchly in Ronald Reagan. You're looking for a new avatar. And I think, Rich, this has been a problem for the Republican Party ever since Ronald Reagan. The party has yet to find that successor, that avatar. George W. Bush should have been that person, but he wasn't. And I think this explains in part Donald Trump's rise. He ran in a very crowded field in 2016 against a lot of guys, all of whom thought they were, excuse me, women as well, uh, people who thought they were the answer to the Republican Party. Rich, if Donald Trump were to reverse course yet again and announce he's not running in 2020, pulls a James K. Polk and says he's done everything he set out to do and then leaves the stage, what does that field look like in 2020? Because it seems to me that we're pretty much back at square one in 2016 with a dozen or so Republicans all claiming to speak for the Republican Party. 
Yes. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. No. I would, I'd be shocked because I think running for, for president is one of the things he enjoys most about this entire process. I, I, was, and, I was convinced for a while, Rich, that he, that he would not run again because he proved he could win. But now that I think about it, of course he'd run for re-election because he has to prove they could win once he could win again. Just yeah, All about course. confounding people. Of course. Also, I mean, we, as a nation, we collectively decided to uh, give the biggest bully pulpit in the world – and the White House and Marine One and Air Force One and Marine contingent that salutes him every time he walks out the door mm-hmm. to a, a man who wants media attention above all and is kind of an egomaniac. So he's, right. he's not going to just walk away from that. That exactly. would be crazy. But I think, you know, we'd, we'd see a version probably of the same debate in 2016 with the playing field tilted a little bit more in a populist nationalist direction, but with a, still a contingent believing that this was all some bizarre one-off and the, the whole phenomenon would go away when Donald Trump goes away. And I just think that's, that's wrong. And on, on Reagan and George W. Bush, you know, Reagan didn't run as a Reagan conservative. He ran as someone who had a, a particular solution to the particular problems of the day, whether it was gas lines or the hostage crisis or the Cold War with the Soviet Union or inflation or bracket creep or any uh, number of things. And George W. Bush, I think, was really, I mean, he's a fine man. I supported a lot of what he did, but his failure was just a key predicate for the rise of Donald Trump because he stood for the establishment and it was, the establishment was just discredited in the minds of a lot of Republican voters who hated their own establishment. And if George W. Bush had been a more successful president and gone out, you know, at 60 percent of approval, this might have looked different. Your thoughts on John Kasich and Jeff Flake and those Republicans who think that Trump has to be stopped either in a Republican primary in 2020 or in independent challenge in the general election. Do you think there's any there there? I don't think there's any there there at the moment. And I don't think those guys would be the right ones to challenge Trump if it ever came to that. At the moment, John Kasich wouldn't even win the Ohio primary against Donald Trump. And Jeff Flake, just fine man. I agree with him on a a lot of things, but really misplayed the Trump phenomenon. He, you know, had written this anti-Trump book, I assume, on the assumption that Trump would lose, Mm -hmm. and then didn't adjust it very much after he won. And I I think you can criticize Trump. You don't have to be on on board with him 100%. You don't have to disgrace yourself by explaining or rationalizing every single thing. But you can't have this totalist uh, attack on him the way Flake did and survive, certainly not in Arizona or maybe any state outside of of Utah. So if either of those guys ran in the Republican primary, if we're at anything like the status quo we have now, you know, they they could get 15, 20 percent places, mm-hmm. but would, would mostly be a symbolic uh, and irrelevant run. And if Kasich ran as an independent, you know, it might, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, crunching numbers more than I do, but it might actually help Donald Trump. So absent some like incredible heterodox act by Trump, like, you know, pointing his sister to the Supreme Court (laughs) and a a terrible scandal, like, you know, verifiable collusion, you know, that takes him down to like 30 percent 
and Republicans lose 60 seats in the fall. Absent all that kind of happening, I don't see a primary challenge real, getting any traction. I'm or surprised being you said his sister. I thought you'd say Judge Janine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a vote last night in Illinois, Rich. I don't know if you saw the results or not, but um, I find them kind of telling, and I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, there were Republican-Democratic primaries. Illinois does it both sides. Uh, gubernatorial primary, Bruce Rauner, the Republican uh, incumbent governor, he won the primary, but barely. Ginny Ives, who I think National Review has written about, I think you endorsed her candidacy, endorsed her, actually. Yeah. Right. She got 48.6% of the vote. She almost took him down. If you look on the Democratic side, the chair of the Cook County Democratic Party, who's a pretty powerful guy in Illinois politics, he lost the county assessor race. And if you look on the Democratic side of the gubernatorial primary, Rich, a fellow named Chris Kennedy lost. Chris Kennedy is the eighth of 11 uh, of RFK and Ethel Kennedy's kids. He was running pretty shamelessly on Kennedy Magic, Kennedy Juju, running ads featuring Jack and Bobby and so forth. He's a dynast, and the dynasty got taken down last night. You look at Illinois, and what do you see? It's a rough night for the establishment. The sitting governor almost gets taken down. This guy with the last name, famous last name, Kennedy, trying to evoke that magic. He doesn't get anywhere. What do you think is going on here? Well, it's just another indication that there's an anti-establishment wave, not just in the United States, but in the Western world. Right. And because of the, the gravitational pull of American politics is so strong for the two parties, you can't see what you did in France, where neither of the two major parties made it into the final running. It was two basically independent candidates, or what you've seen in other countries with center-left parties basically disappearing. That's not going to happen here, but you're going to continue to see um, upset like this. And Jeannie Ives, I think if she had had another week, she would have beaten Bruce Rauner. I, uh, the conservative media was a little slow on the uptake on, on her. You know, Rush mentioned her the last day. Laura Ingram ha had her on the, the morning of the, the election. But another week of a, a drumbeat, and it was only you know, three points or so, I think she could have beaten him. And Rauner, you know, it's not easy being the Republican governor of Illinois, but he's really achieved zero and, in our view, betrayed the party on some important issues. So if I'm the House Republicans and I'm looking at these Illinois results, how worried am I at the moment about my standing? Because this suggests that establishment, the majority, is going to get hit. Yeah, I would think in the normal course of things, if you had unified control of Washington and a 24-seat majority, 23, I guess now, 23-seat yeah. uh, majority in the House, you'd be in danger of losing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're in danger of losing. And the special elections, even the ones that Republicans have won, do show a Democratic surge uh, of a magnitude that certainly puts the, the House in danger. So uh, my assumption now is they lose about 30 seats and, um, and and they lose the majority. That might not be enough for the Democrats to actually impeach Trump. I think they probably need a cushion, you know, right. 10 or 15 votes there. But the difference between Democrats coming up short by one vote or taking the majority by one vote is huge because it gives them subpoena power. Right. And we'll see every single one of these women accusers in front of a uh, Congressional, as a congressional witness uh, in front of some committee and an effort to do everything they can possible to troll Donald Trump into a constitutional crisis. Sure. Look, I'm guessing that Washington, and with at least a Democratic House in 2019, will look like Washington in 2011 with the Republican House. It's just going to be one nonstop investigation of everything, just a forever perp walk of people coming down Pennsylvania Avenue to testify. But what about the Democratic Party in general, Rich? Because 
first of all, it'll be a party very full of itself if it gets back at least half right. of Congress. Uh, it'll be a party convinced that Donald Trump is a one-term act, and it'll be a party with people lined up to the rear wanting to challenge him, but rich, they'll all be establishment candidates all coming from Congress. And if you go back and look in your history in the past century, every time the Democrats have run a challenger against a Republican president who had congressional bloodlines, either in Congress or at some time of Congress, that person has lost every time. Yeah, the, only time, the only time they've kicked out a, um, a sitting Republican president, governors. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I go back and forth on whether they will um, lurch to the left because they win Congress and they think this is this is easy and they, they feel the tide running in their, their direction, or they'll lurch in the left because they lose Congress and are driven crazy right. by it. But I think maybe both are right. <laughs> so you look at the 2020 field right now. Who has your interest? Who are you looking at on the Democrat side? Well, and, I, and I know you don't do Democrats for a living, but who, who intrigues you? Well, I, I don't know whether they intrigue me, but I, I think a, a key question, you know, do Bernie and Elizabeth Warren run? You would think, I don't know, we should retire the word lane. It would really yes. serve the Republicans poorly in 2016. And the one guy who didn't think about lanes, Donald Trump, actually won. But if we're going to use lane, you think Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are in, in the same Lane and Bernie would make it really difficult for for her. I th- I assume Bernie's going to run. I assume initially he's the front runner. Right. I'm 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 not sure he's going to win the nomination in part because he's never really gotten the sort of in, intense scrutiny you get as a, a front runner for the presidential right. nomination. I mean he was I- ignored or treated as as a somewhat cute eccentric against Hillary Clinton in 2016. This time will be different. I'm not sure how well he's going to hold up under that kind of fire. Another key question is whether Biden is going to run. You know, uh, we have this this mano mano thing go, going on now between Biden and, and Trump, which I think is in part an answer. Like w- one question is, is the way Trump conducts himself, is this sort of a one-off? Right. And will there be a reaction against it where if a Democrat actually wins, it'll be on a, a unifying a kind of polite affect that's in a reaction to Donald Trump, right. or is this the new normal? And right. Biden, you know, saying that he would have beaten up Trump in, in high school exactly. and only fat slobs talk the way Trump does, and then Trump saying you bloody Biden and make him cry like a baby. It's an indication that that probably this is the new normal. But I think Biden is at least going to uh, think about it mm-hmm. and probably will pull up short. And then we'll we'll have this situation where you know they're 16 or 20. Um, candidates, and there, there are going to be some surprises in there. I wasn't even really well-tuned to what the surprises were in the Republican primary, so I don't presume to tell you what they're going to be in the Democratic primary. Yeah, so you're talking in Bernie Sanders, a candidate well into his 70s. He'll be, I think, if not 80, pretty close to 80 by 2020. Uh, Joe Biden is well into his 70s. Jerry Brown, who wants to run in 2020, but probably doesn't have a, any opening in there. He's 80 years old this year. Elizabeth Warren is hitting into her 70s. The Democrats don't do age very well. And I'm not saying this as an ageist, but just again, going back to what works for Democrats in presidential, presidential elections. And I think this is what caused problems for Hillary, because she was 68 yep. going on 69. Historically, Democrats love candidates, what? In their 40s and early 50s, who have very young families and thus are positioned to talk about the future and tomorrow. Right. That's, that's what makes Democrats' hearts go pity pat. Older Democrats don't have that advantage. And if anything, the older Democrats tend to be rather bitter, pessimistic, and downers as candidates. And yeah. so that's, that's again, a hard sell, I think, to the American people. Yeah. And the same, you look at the congressional leadership, and it's the, the very same 
thing, the, right. the gerontocracy. On the Democratic side, I think the Bill Clinton line is still applies. Uh, no, it doesn't really fully apply because of, of Donald Trump. But, you know, he used to say Democrats want to fall uh, – Republicans want to fall in line and Democrats want to fall in love. And that was certainly true in 2008 when Democrats had what appeared to be a perfectly respectable establishment frontrunner in Hillary Clinton and fell in love with this young African-American candidate, uh, Barack Obama. I think there's going to be a similar – dynamic. And um, my, I guess my bold prediction will be whoever the nominee is, is not going to be a white male. I thought you were going to say I did not have relations with that woman. <laughs> Final question, Rich, and I'll let you get out of here. I do appreciate your time today. Um, two things seem on the table right now for Republicans this week in Washington. One is the question of fiscal conservatism. What happened to it? Because we're looking at another temporary spending plan, which is going to jack up spending yet again. So fiscal conservatism seems to be a relic of a bygone era. But the second question, Rich, is one of character. And I don't know how the NDAs play out in these various women's story Daniels who are now starting to pop out on television. But for Republicans, conservatives in particular, but Republicans in general, there is a question of what you can abide by in terms of the president and his character. So what is going to happen with Republicans, conservatives, as they watch Donald Trump go down this road with all of these accusations? Well, first on the fiscal conservatism, it's just that's the weakest part of the Republican coalition, and mm -hmm. it's the hardest thing to do right. in Washington. And you need a, a leadership that's beginning with the president is entirely devoted to it, just you know, to, to even just get the, the rate of growth, government spending down. And we don't have this. Now, Trump has allied with economic conservatives on important things like deregulation and uh, tax cuts, but he just has zero interest in the size of government mm. or controlling spending. On Stormy Daniels and, and the rest of it, I think we'll just see what we've seen so far, which is basically ducking and covering on the part of most Republicans. I mean, they really want to believe uh, that they're, uh, they're they're a little bit. It's like a Thanksgiving dinner where there's a you know uh, an uncle who's been drinking too too much and just everyone wants to ignore him right. uh, or ignore at least uh, huge aspects of what he's doing. And that that's the tack that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have taken, and the rest of the party has taken as well. And they'll continue to do that unless there's some break with Trump and the base of the party, which I don't foresee. Right, but in 1998, rich Democrats made one calculation at the end of the day with Bill Clinton, and that was power. Right. And that we maybe don't like what he has done vis-a-vis -vis Monica Lewinsky, we don't like the way he has conducted himself, and we're not going to applaud certainly committing perjury, but this is about taking away the office, and we're not going to let that happen. So do you see Republicans ending up making the same stand with Trump? Yes, absolutely. And it's not, it, it's, it, it's not at the Clinton level yet. I wrote a column about this today. And certainly Stormy Daniels is like Jennifer Flowers. Summer Zierzos is potentially like Paula Jones, right. you know, who got got really the, the ball rolling that, that got Clinton impeached. But what Trump does not have is Monica Lewinsky, mm -hmm. someone in the White House under his um, control that he has had sexual relations with. That might really upset the apple cart. And he's not lied under oath about any of this, which uh, goes back to my prior admonition that I would really try to avoid right. saying anything <laughs> under oath about it, any exactly. of this. So so it's easy to start to say, look, because 10 years ago, we knew this, and it was adjudicated in the presidential election. Republicans can revert to that. What would change it is if Trump uh, crossed these two red lines. Okay. Rich Lowry, thanks for coming in, and I'm sorry again about your Cavaliers. <laughs> thanks for having me. There's always next year. 
You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of our Hoover Fellows to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Rich Lowry is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is, surprisingly enough, at Rich Lowry. That's spelled R-I-C-H-L-O-W-R-Y. What happened to the E? Everyone wants to put E in there, but the the E doesn't exist. All right, so at Rich Rowley, R-I-C-H-L-O-W-R-Y. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.